Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Would you stand with me? And we're going to turn in the Word of God to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68. 26, 47 through 68. This is the Word of God. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up with him, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Therefore, how will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you yourself have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his garments and said, he has blasphemed. What further do we need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered him and said, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, O Christ, who is the one who hit you? The word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer that God will bless his word. Father, I pray that your word will not return void. You've promised this. We ask it. Give it power. May my words be 
true to your word and may you cause all of us to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that your word will have power in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. It is striking to read a passage like this which uh, in an incidental way but a, a way that I, I encourage you to remember reveals the attitude of Christ to the word of God. You, you and I are tempted to look at the word as something that is malleable, sort of counselish, but Jesus views the word of God as absolute. It will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. Every word he is intentionally fulfilling. Every word he as God stands behind. He is the word and the word is Christ. And therefore, it is reliable. It is worth your life. It is the sure thing in all the world. Nothing else is as sure as the word of God. Now, we've chosen, I've chosen as a passage, a portion of scripture that encompasses two events on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And out of these two events, I would like to have us understand the mission of Christ, what he came to do, what he did not come to do. We're going to see this in three ways. First, what Jesus could do, but did not do. What he had the power and authority to do, but rejected. Second, we will look at what he will do one day, but not yet. Both of these first two are not his mission at this point in his life. The first one is utterly rejected. The second is put forward in time, but not yet. The third is what he did do. What he could do, but did not. What he will do, but not yet. And what he did do. And we begin, of course, with what he could do, but did not. And... It's important that we understand as we look at this that had Jesus done this, he would have been unworthy. It would have been a ruination of everything he came to do. And he puts it behind him, and so must you. And you must understand that if you look at Jesus in, this, in, this first, in light of this first possible goal that he rejects, and you, you take up that goal for yourself, that you become unworthy just as he says, this would have been unworthy. I'm not going to do it. All right? There are two events on the night Christ is betrayed. First is actual betrayal by Judas, capture by the mob, the evil mob sent by the high priest. Second, his trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the elders of the Jews. It takes place later in the evening. Jesus has just finished praying, and he has said to his, his sleeping disciples, Behold, the hour is at hand. Son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And immediately, Judas appears with the mob that is armed with their swords and clubs. And here we have the betrayal of Christ. Here it actually takes place. It has been conspired about. It has been promised. But here it actually happens. Judas appears and Judas knows who Jesus is, 
in the crowd. He knows where he can be found and which one he is amidst the, the group of disciples. And he identifies Jesus with a kiss. Jesus responds to this kiss, which we must understand as having been the typical manner of greeting among these close friends of Jesus. That they were warm, that Jesus' fellowship was rich and deep, that he physically loved as well as emotionally and in action, that he was demonstrative. And we see that reflected in his his words to Judas, as Judas comes and kisses him, he says, betrayer, come what you did, what you've come to do. Betrayer, you know, son of the devil, do what you came to do. No. He says, friend, friend. Friend, do what you've come for. Judas is betraying him. Jesus calls him friend. Jesus has said of him, did I myself not choose you the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Judas is a devil, a dishonest man, a betrayer, a thief of the monies. But despite this, Judas has been Jesus' friend. And what an, a warning and what an encouragement. Let's begin with the warning. The warning is that at some point, the sinner stops being the friend of Jesus. At some point, Judas is just a devil, and he's going to his fate, and there's no room found for repentance. We'll talk about that in some weeks ahead. That's the warning. The encouragement, of course, is that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Even here, even now, he calls Judas friend. Is there hope for Judas even at this point? Humanly and spiritually, yes. Should he repent, he will be saved. But he will not. And it is his will as well as the appointment of the Father. His will is committed to betraying Jesus. It is his free action done in the face of love. It is not compulsion. It is destined by God and it was absolutely the will of Judas to betray the one who has just called him friend. Now you may be a real sinner. And your sin may strike you as being beyond the capacity of God to forgive and to love, to love you in the midst of it. But you can be Jesus' friend because he came to save sinners like you. He was a friend to sinners. And so no matter how dark or bleak or devastating your sin, you may call on Jesus as a friend. And if you respond to his love as a friend with repentance, you will find forgiveness. You will receive the new birth. You'll be granted the gift of eternal life. This is no mere word, Jesus calling Judas friend. He doesn't use that name frequently. He calls the paralytic who's lowered through the roof 
by his friend's friend. When he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep before he raises him. It's a term when used by Christ that is loaded with hope. He says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So we sit in an exalted company of men and women, boys and girls, many of whom are actually friends of God. They have the Son of God as their friend. And you can have this. You can receive this status. This is offered to you. Do what Jesus has told you to. Repent. Turn away from your sin. It's open to Judas, but he will not have it. Turn from your sin. Turn to this Savior who loves you who calls you friend. Now, Judas has been the friend of Christ, but the friendship here is over. At this point, the kiss, the betrayal. He has been a friend despite Christ knowing his character. He has been loved by Jesus. Jesus kisses him. It's not a weird thing. It's friendship. And immediately, Jesus is seized by the armed mob, and in response, Peter, we know from the account in John, takes his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. We're told who did it and who was had his ear cut off in other gospels. The high priest slave is named Malchus. He's part of the armed mob. And of course, it's, it's Peter who, who grabs his sword and says, I'm going to deal with you. Earlier this evening, Jesus told the disciples that previously he had sent them out without a purse or a sword or an extra cloak. But now they're to take money and whoever of them has a cloak should sell it and buy a sword. The disciples show him as they make their way to the, the the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, they say, here we are, we have two swords, Jesus. And he says, that's enough. In other words, sufficient. But when Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave, Jesus will have none of it, saying to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, why did he tell them to buy swords and keep money bags together with their swords at the ready? Well, not as offensive weapons, not as means of advancing his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is not advanced by swords and gold. That's not what he's saying. It's a warning that hard times, persecutions, and death lie ahead. Swords and money are not the way the kingdom of God triumphs. They're not the way it advances. It's the opposite. They will be attacked. They will be threatened. They must be prepared for the opposition that lies ahead. You know that Jesus embraces neither money, gold, nor swords as the path for his people to follow. He is warning what they can expect when he says that, what they must be ready for. Not calling them to a holy war to advance his cause. We need to remember this in a day when there is pronounced emphasis in certain churches on Christian nationalism. Suggesting that we as Christians need to return by our, by our grabbing the reins of power in this country and by our holiness to a Constantinian form of government. Constantine being the Roman emperor who embraced Christianity and said now the empire is Christian. And there are many who are saying this is what we must do. We need to return to the Christian roots of our republic.
We need to triumph as a church through law and government. We need those bearers of the sword. We need to remember that no nation ever had stronger godly roots than we do. But of course, Judea had stronger, more godly roots than we do. Judea at the time of Christ had a much richer and more godly heritage than America has ever had. No nation ever had a more rich, godly heritage. No human being ever had a greater right to claim a throne and to seek to rule the nations than Jesus, who was the son of David, king of kings and lord of lords. But Jesus came as a baby to a manger. He was a friend of sinners. He who had the treasures of heaven had no place to lay his head. Despised and rejected of men, assigned a place with sinners in his death. The one who set in place the roiling spheres. The one who holds the stars in his right hand. The one who summons the dawn. Set aside that glory. Set aside that power. So Peter cuts off the high priest here. And Jesus responds, Peter, put your sword back into its place. All those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, Peter? Do you not understand the power that is within my grasp, Peter? Do you not know that I have to say one word to God and 12 legions of angels will be at my beck and call, the hosts of heaven, the army of heaven? A legion had 6,000 men, 72,000 angels at Christ's beck and call. The same powerful beings that when David numbered the truths, just one went out. One went out and killed 70,000 Israelites. One, 70,000. 72,000 of them, Jesus says, if I want, I can have. At the rate of the death after the counting of the people, that would be instantaneous five billion human deaths if Christ were to call on his father but he did not he did not take up the sword even the heavenly sword he did not claim a throne he did not seek worldly power he told Peter to put his sword away that those who take up swords to fight the prince of this world those who live by the sword will die by the sword and what he's saying is trust God Trust God, not swords, not guns, not thrones, not empires, not kings, not congresses, not human institutions, not human power. God is our refuge. God is our strength. In God we place our hope. We fight not with flesh and blood. We do not fight with human weapons of power. We can't fight the real enemy with swords. That enemy lives within us. We might claim the throne of America through our Christian nationalism. We'll find that it's godless because our hearts are wicked. 
Jesus could have claimed a throne, and he could have called on the Father for six legions of angels. He could have had his disciples supported in earthly battle by heavenly power, but he did not. What he could do, he did not do. He would not do it. And he calls you and me to live in the same manner. So, having seen what Christ would not do, and what would be unworthy in you to seek in me, the power of the power of man, the strength of sorts. It's clear. But then we come to what Christ will do, but not yet. The second thing we need to note here is what Christ will do. Having been captured by the mob that he told his disciples not to resist, Jesus is brought to the, the house of the high priest Caiaphas in Jerusalem. In that house, Christ is arraigned before an absolute kangaroo court. It's an illegal trial by illegitimate authorities. Caiaphas himself is no true descendant of Aaron and high priest. He's a Roman hack. He's Jewish, but appointed by Rome, not by God. He's a usurper. And under that, as its presiding officer, this court meets in secret, star chamber, with charges brought by informants paid by the court to lie. A farce, a charade, a sham. Sham in its, in its institution at night, away from the public eye. Sham in its personages. The people are shams too. Yet, we might think, now this is the time to stand up, and Jesus does not. It's ironic, even as a sham court with sham authorities, usurpers, um, they're not shams. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus submits to them, but they really aren't godly authorities. They're not that. Even as such, and, and, and the priesthood was an institution that Jesus, that God had instituted with certain people to be in. So, just as Herod is a sham, he's not a son of David, Caiaphas is a sham as well. Yet even as such, this group which has tried to align events and testimony to, to be able to put Jesus to death, they're manifestly unsuccessful. But paid liars, the fabricating informants, can't give testimony that agrees with each other. We're told this in other gospels. They can't agree with each other. They contradict each other. Finally frustrated, the authorities, when one informant says, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. Caiaphas, actually, the high priest, takes the matter under his own advisement. He's frustrated because the prosecutors and the witnesses aren't able to do anything. He's supposed to be the judge. But he turns into the prosecutor and instead of the pretended impartiality of a judge, he turns to the naked hatred of an accuser, the accusatory office of a prosecutor. And in fact, this is the only charge that has any basis in fact, because Jesus had said earlier of his own body, not the temple, but of his own body, destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was not speaking of the temple, John writes, the Jews then said it took 46 years to build this sanctuary and you're going to raise it in three days. He's speaking about the sanctuary of his body, which is an even more wonderful accomplishment. To raise a body is significantly harder than to raise a temple. 
<clears throat> so what they say is partially true, but opposed to Christ's meaning. Nevertheless, even as it's accused by the witness, the charge is, in a sense, trivial. Because you can say many, many things about the temple without being guilty of blasphemy, right? You can say, I don't like the color of the temple. <laughs> it's not blasphemous. You can say, I wish Herod hadn't put this colonnade there. It would look better if it were on the other side. Not blasphemy. You can say, I'm going to tear this down and put it up in three days. You might be a madman, okay, in the eyes of people. You're not a blasphemer. The, the charge itself is trivial unless there is the understanding that in the claim, Jesus is saying something that is not the ravings of a lunatic. Now, people say that Jesus did not claim to be the Son of God, that Jesus nowhere said, I'm the Son of God, I am this, that, that Jesus was just a good man and that we as Christians have built him into this Son of God. That is absolute nonsense and revealed as such by this charge being called blasphemous because they all understand that when Jesus says this, he's claiming to have the power of God at his right hand. That's what they understand. And so they say, did you say this? <coughs> and so having, having had the charge made, Matthew writes, Caiaphas stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, okay, and this is a non sequitur, unless you understand that Jesus was understood by the authorities, understood by his own claims, understood by everyone, to, if he's the Messiah, to be the son of God. So the, the high priest says to him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. That is whom the Christ is, the Messiah. He is, according to the Old Testament, the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, the mighty God. If he's the Christ, he is God. They hear his claims, they rebel, because those claims can only be made by the Messiah, and if he's the Messiah, he is God. So Caiaphas is cutting to the chase here. The accusers are a botched job. He turns to Jesus himself, understanding the Old Testament, understanding the claims of Jesus' power and his teaching. He knows Jesus had made claims and done acts that are the claims and acts of the Messiah. Prisoners set free, the dead raised, the blind seeing, all the things that have been said about the Messiah. He understands that Jesus has done them. He knows that the Messiah is the son of David, yet David's Lord. That David has said that. Caiaphas knows that. That therefore, though he's David's son, he's greater than David. He knows that the Messiah and Redeemer of Israel has as his name's Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. If Jesus claims to be the Messiah and is accepted as the Messiah, every Jew knows that that claim makes him the son of God. So he turns to Jesus and he says, tell me yourself, I place you under oath. Are you the Christ, the son of God? And listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, 
Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, you've said it. But he doesn't just say, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he says, I'm telling you as well, the day is coming when you will see me sitting at the right hand of the power and the throne of God and I will be coming in that power on the clouds of heaven and you will see it. And all of you will one day see Christ this way. No greater claim could ever be made. No higher authority ever asserted. No greater power ever proclaimed I am the Christ, the Son of God. One day you will see it. You will see me, the Son of Man as I am now, sitting at the right hand of omnipotence, coming on the clouds of heaven. So if they want him to blaspheme by claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, he gives them blasphemy in spades. The question is not whether he declares himself the son of God, but whether he is. There's no question about his claim. The question is, is it true? Now today, many still see him as Caiaphas saw him. Those lacking faith see him as the Roman soldiers saw him, a man they're gonna put to death. They see the man, maybe a special man, but a man. This is the only vision that you can have of Jesus if God does not make you new. Remove from your eyes the blindness of sin. If you can't see Jesus as the Son of God, then your eyes have been blinded. And you don't have the gift of faith. And if you can't see Jesus as the Son of God, one day you will see him as the Son of God. But on that day, if you've not understood him prior to that day as the son of God, you will have no chance for repentance, just like Judas. So if you do not see Jesus as the son of God, then you have not been born again. You are not a new creation in him. And you need to go home and get on your knees and pray with every fiber of your being that God will open your eyes so that you see the truth before the truth condemns you. Paul writes, being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Christ will do, but not yet. Today is a day of mercy. Today is a day for repentance.
Today is a day to beseech God, to ask him with all you are and have, save me. This day is coming. You will see it. Caiaphas will see it. Herod will see it. Caesar will see it. Pilate will see it. The mob will see it. And they will all bow. And they will all confess that Jesus is Lord. Not yet, but coming. Not today, but soon. So what does Christ do? Again, the first, the first thing, the thing he could do and will not do. The 12 legions. He says, don't even go there. Don't go there. The second thing, the second thing, what he will do, but not yet. He will go there, but he will go there. And you will bow. And you will be received by him into glory. But it's not your prerogative to choose that either. It's not your power. It's not your, your calling. You are to bow. So what does Jesus do? We've seen what he could do but won't. What he will do but not yet. What does he do? What is the greater goal? And I want to point out what Jesus does what he does do first to those who are his followers this morning and then to those who may not yet know him as the son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. To the followers, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, take careful notice of the path Jesus prefers to the path of earthly power and of worldly vindication. Jesus is going to return with power and on that day, he will be vindicated by the Father. It will be clear to everyone just who he is and his relationship to the Father. It will be as bright or brighter than the sun. We will all see it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But when Jesus returns... He will come to bring judgment. What he rejects is earthly vindication. He goes to the grave among sinners. What he rejects is earthly vindication and vengeance. He does not exact a penalty of the soldiers, of any of those who participate in his death. He doesn't at any point say, this is too much, you've mocked me, you're hitting me and claiming that I don't know who's hitting me, you're making fun of me, I'm done. Let me show you what I can do. Come out, angels, show them. I, I need to say to you that the path Jesus has set before us is the one he walks, and it's defined by the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are those who do not aspire to great earthly things because they shall inherit the earth. There will be vindication one day for you as well as for Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are you when all men speak ill of you. 
And the path that you are to follow is the path that Jesus himself followed and that he called you to. If you love him and you're his friend, you do what he says. You do not take up the sword. You do not think that earthly power is the way that God's kingdom advances. It doesn't advance by your being cool, by your being wealthy. It doesn't advance by these things. It doesn't advance by your guns. It doesn't advance by your intellect. The wisdom of God is folly in the eyes of man. And the folly of this world is wisdom in the eyes of God. You don't get to the kingdom of God by your brain, by your wealth, by anything other than worship of Jesus Christ. So put aside these other pursuits that are killing you. Because this pursuit of money killed Judas. Killed him. Killed him dead. Put it aside and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, to those of you who do not at this point know that you are called, who do not see Jesus as your Savior, who are, who are not certain of your standing in Christ, what did Jesus come to do? That's very clear. He came to walk the path to Calvary. He came to die. And why did he come to die? Because he is your friend. He is a friend to sinners. And he is calling you to be his friend. And to be his friend means doing what he said. Repent of your sin. Turn away. Say, God, help me. I'm an alcoholic. God, help me. I'm addicted to pornography. God, help me. I have a bitter spirit and tongue. God, help me. I need you. And you'll find a friend who stays closer than the brother who carries you, who walks at your side, who loves you, and who will one day usher you into his presence as his brother before the Father. Remember, Jesus does not do anything that will vindicate himself or demonstrate his power. He goes to the cross and he does it for you and for me. That's what he does. He dies. So worship him. Seek him. Give your life to him. He gave his life for you. Give your life to him. Say, I'm done with the world. I want this glorious Savior. I must have this Jesus. And anything else is irrelevant if I don't have Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, for his love and power, for his self-effacement, Father, his humility, that he did not call down the 12 legions of angels, but walked the lonely path, Father, to death. May you cause everyone here to know Jesus as their savior. May you open our eyes, unblock our ears, soften our hearts, so that we can see and know and worship Jesus Christ. We pray it in his glorious name, amen.